More than 60 months later, the whole world continues to follow the war in Ukraine. And based on the latest updates, we begin to see some internal crack within the Putin regime. And if you follow the news closely, that in the past few days, the Wagner Group, especially the leader Progochin, announced a rebellion against Russia and claimed his forces seized the southern city of Rostov and marched his forces towards Moscow. And how should we understand this rebellion coming within this regime? And does that mean people are starting to wake up and realize that the war in Ukraine today might not even worth it? And how should we understand the reaction from the West? And also, what about the close partner with Russia, which is China? Putting everything together, is Ukraine going to win the war? Or this is another brand new message, boldly enough to Vladimir Putin. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker. Again, if you follow our show, you should be familiar with Dr. Alexander Moto. Again, Dr. Moto is American historian and a political scientist, and he's a resident of New York City, and he's a professor of political science at Rutgers University in New York, and he's a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the Soviet Union. Well, Dr. Moto, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thank you for having me, Will. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and your audience. Well, Dr. Moltul, again, it's an honor to have you back on the show. Now, as we mentioned before, more than 16 months later, the whole world continued to follow the war in Ukraine. Again, initially, everyone was rather stunned by how Vladimir Putin ruthlessly invaded this country of Ukraine. But recently, it seems like we're seeing the turning point within this regime this Wagner Group leader announced this rebellion against Russia. Of course, initially, we got the reaction from Putin. He called it the treason. And also, he claimed that anyone betrays the country or anyone betrays his political ambition are going to face serious punishment. Dr. Moto, let's get to the first question. How should we understand the recent rebellion from the Wagner Group? And also, how should we understand the reaction from Putin? And most importantly, as we asked the question before, is this the indication towards the end of the war in Ukraine? What do you say to that? Well, let's, let me start with the observation that we, of course, don't know exactly what happened. Uh, we don't really know what what were Prigozhin's motivations. Mm. Uh, was he really intent on staging a coup d'état? Uh, was he simply marching on Moscow so as to make a point? Mm. Was he acting alone? Was he acting together with other elites? Uh, there's all sorts of speculative theories. Most of them make sense, which is another way of saying we don't know. Mm. But there are certain things that we do know, and those are striking. One is his troops were able to seize control of Rostov mm. very easily. Now, Rostov happens to be a center of the Russian armed forces. It's a very important command and control center. It's a very important logistics center. So he was able to win control over Rostov without encountering any opposition or just about any opposition from the local forces. 
He also encountered no opposition from the local militia, the police, the National Guard. Mm. Now, had they intervened, there would have been a serious conflict. Mm. Um, and if the Air Force had been introduced, Prigozhin would have been destroyed. So what this suggests is that there was no order from above to resist Prigozhin. Mm. The same thing happened as he marched north. Uh, his his uh, tanks were arrayed in a column and had the Russian military wanted to destroy the tanks, it could easily have done so, mm. but it didn't. Now, what does that mean? It's hard to, you know, we don't know. One, is, one possibility is that he had support within the military mm. and that they were either trying to stage a coup or simply make look Putin weak. Mm. What we do know for certain is that Putin has been weakened by this mm. because the mere fact of a mutiny, the mere fact of an attempted coup shows, as you suggested in your introductory comments, that there are serious uh, issues and tears and fragmentations within the Russian elite. This is not a monolithic regime. It's a regime that is divided, not necessarily even into two parts. It could be three, four, possibly even five parts. Mm. And it's clear that Putin is the loser. It's not clear that Prigozhin is the winner. I, we don't know who won, mm. but we know who lost. It's Putin. Very insignificantly, um, keep in mind that in order to defuse the crisis, it wasn't Putin who negotiated with Prigozhin. It wasn't one of his men. It was Lukashenko, mm. the president of Belarus. Lukashenko until now has become the vassal of Putin. He's become his water boy, so to speak. Uh, he's become his servant. Suddenly, the servant saves the master. Mm. Um, again, we don't know who called Lukashenko. Did he volunteer his services? We just don't know. But we do know that he seems to have played a critical part. And it wasn't Putin who did this. It wasn't his people. It was Lukashenko, the servant vassal. Mm. We also know the following, that less than half of the Security Council came out in support of Putin during the crisis. Mm. The other uh, participants, the other members of the council kept quiet, which again suggests that they are, let's say, minimally enthusiastic about Putin. Perhaps some of them were even hoping that Putin would leave. Mm. So what we can conclude for certain is that Putin has become weaker, that the regime has serious cracks and it's now quite possible that the opposition to Putin will grow and that he may in fact be ousted relatively soon mm. because put yourself in the position of Russian elites. 
they know that the war has become a disaster. Mm. They know that the economy has become a disaster. They know that Putin has no solutions to the problems of the country or the war. And they see that he's become even weaker. They have to start thinking, do we now keep our, retain our support of Putin, who is declining and possibly on the way out? Mm. Or do we try to fix this? Or do we try to align ourselves with whoever happens to be in the opposition to Putin? Uh, these are all of the preconditions that usually exist when a coup d'etat takes place. Mm. Now, we don't know whether this will take place, but the fact that this mutiny occurred and that Putin has become weaker does mean certainly that the likelihood of a coup d'etat has now increased significantly. Mm. So we shouldn't be surprised if this becomes even more difficult for Putin. Um, what are the implications for the war? Well, clearly they're good for Ukraine and they're negative for Russia. Mm. Um, we, we, we've seen se several things. For one thing, the divided leadership. Uh, we don't know what the result of that will be. It could be that Putin leaves. It could be that Prigozhin returns. Mm. It could be that Narishkin or one of these other people assumes the helm. We just don't know. Uh, but we do know that there will be increasing instability, confusion, and disagreement within the political elite. Mm. That means that they will have greater difficulty agreeing on what to do with regard to the war. That is good for Ukraine. That is bad for Russia. Mm. It's also true, and this again we know, that when you have an army, a private army within a country, and here I'm talking about the Wagner group, mm. which consists of 25,000 people, whose leader has started a mutiny. Yes, he eventually gave it up, but he was able to start the mutiny and he was able to march unopposed mm. by anybody within the army. When this occurs, we can obviously conclude that the armed forces are divided as well. Mm. And that obviously has negative implications for Russia's ability to wage the war. I wouldn't be surprised if Ukraine decides to take advantage of this situation. How exactly, we don't know. They might intensify the counteroffensive. They might offer some kind of peace deal mm. to the Russian soldiers and encourage them to defect or surrender. We don't know, but mm. it would be logical for Ukraine to take advantage of the current situation. So none of this bodes well for Russia's ability to wage the war. Indeed, think about this. When you have an official army, namely the armed forces of Russia, and in addition to that, you have an unofficial army, which is actually far more efficient and far better than the official army. Mm. And this unofficial army was involved in an attempted mutiny or coup. Those are all the indications of what we call 
a failed state. And if you add to this mixture the disagreement within the elite, the weakening of Putin, then we can conclude that Russia is in fact failing Mm. as a state. I wouldn't yet say it's a totally failed state, but it's clearly moving in this direction. Mm. And that, of course, has implications for the survival and survivability of the Russian state, Mm. not just Putin, not just the regime, but indeed of the state. Mm. And it's, you know, again, we've talked about this in the past in our conversations, but it's a question that increasingly the countries of the world will have to confront, not just in the West, but especially in Central Asia and, of course, in China. Mm. Because if Russia is going to fail as a state, think of what this means for Siberia, for Central Asia. Think of what this means for Russia's relationship with China. Mm. How will China respond to the possible emergence of autonomous, sovereign, and possibly even independent states east of the Ural Mountains? Um, All we can say is it will be a challenge. Mm. Indeed, Dr. Moltel, again, I agree with you that based on the current status, that there's no denying that Putin is heading for failure. But I want to read something to you and also want to get your interpretation on this. Some believe that the Russian system is based not on institutions, but on informal patronage networks with Putin. When Putin is strong, this approach works to a point. But when Putin is weakened, it can spin out of control. Dr. Molto, how much would you agree with that? Because we know, again, despite what you said, that Russia today, it's a failing state. And also Putin, there's no doubt, is going to be countable for his ruthless and also inhumane behaviors. But again, going back to the statement that this current Russian system is not built upon or it's not based on institutions, but it's informal patronage network. So in other words, it, this pledge to loyalty and also uh, this pledge to dedication, unshakable faith in Putin. So if Putin goes down, it will completely spin out of control. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, let me start by saying that I agree 100% with that statement. Mm. Uh, Stable regimes, stable states have good institutions. Uh, Those institutions are usually democratic, but they could also be moderately democratic, even authoritarian. But you need institutions. People need to be doing things because that's the way the job is defined because that's what the job demands of you. Mm. And that holds true for states, that holds true for regimes, it holds true for corporations, universities, what have you. Uh, In other words, you're there because you have a particular function, and the function is part of a larger system within which everybody has a function, everybody has a role. Now, of course, even in institutionalized systems, there's always some kind of personalized networks but they happen to be relatively small Mm. and you fulfill roles. That way, 
the role of the job gets done regardless of who's in the position, regardless of whether the connections, personal connections are strong or weak. And that makes for continuity, that makes for stability, that makes for efficiency. Where you have exclusively or overwhelmingly personalistic ties based on money, corruption, then that works extremely well as long as that individual at the core is has authority, has legitimacy, and has money to distribute. In other words, as long as he or she is successful in being able to collect money mm. and able to collect and demand authority and legitimacy and obedience from his supporters. But their connections to him are exclusively mercenary. They're venal. In other words, as long as he can buy them and pay them off, they will support him. Mm. Once that begins to weaken, then there's no point. Mm. You look for somebody else. And it's, you find the same kind of system within organized crime, within the mafia. Mm. Uh, the loyalty to the head mafioso is based on his ability to deliver the goods. Mm. Once his deliver, his ability declines, you look for a different chief. You look for a different boss. And the same is true in a system such as the one that Putin built in Russia. And what's happened over the last few years is, for one thing, the economy has gone into a decline. This was even true before the war. Since the war, it's declined even more. Mm. And Putin's ability to buy the support of these individuals has clearly declined. He doesn't have the resources he used to have 5, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. His authority has also declined. He's no longer the vigorous wise, uh, all-powerful leader. He looks ill. He is ill. Mm. Uh, he's clearly confused. He doesn't seem to know what he wants and what to do. And that means, as you said, that his ability to hold these people together in one group, to keep them loyal to his system, is beginning to fray, is beginning to fall apart, is beginning to decay. And the mutiny by Prigozhin has only enhanced that, has lessened his ability to demand loyalty. Mm. Um, and of course, again, it makes perfect sense for the Russian elites, whether political or economic, to start looking around for someone else mm. to be the chieftain, to be the distributor of the wealth. Um, and that gives us some hope because they understand, I think, increasingly, if not completely, that the primary problem that Putin has and that has undermined his authority and has undermined his ability to deliver the goods is the war. Mm. The war has led to this catastrophe for the economy and for the political system and, of course, for Putin. And these people must understand, maybe not all of them, certainly some sector of the Russian elites must understand that if they want to reestablish an effective and efficient um, corrupt system of the kind that existed before, they need to revive the economy. They need to end the sanctions. They need to remove Putin, in a word, 
they need to end the war. Mm. But that means they need to come to some kind of agreement with Ukraine and obviously to some kind of agreement with the West. So there is hope in this that the war might, again, there's hope only, Mm. but the war might be ending precisely because Putin's system is, as you say, imploding. Mm. It's collapsing onto itself. And then the question is, uh, if and when it implodes, and it will, it's going Mm. in that direction, what will happen with the successors to Putin? Um, And many Russian analysts, by the way, believe that even the... Even if the radical nationalists come to power, they will understand that the only way Russia can survive is if Russia ends the war. Mm. Mm. And that, as I said, that gives all of us hope that there may be a light at the end of this terrible dark tunnel. Well, again, Dr. Molto, it's good that we can see there's hope because no one would like to see the continuation of the war. Now, I want to move on to the next question. To go back to the person is Lukashenko. You mentioned it uh, uh, previously during uh, the first answer. Now, again, Dr. Molto, what role does Lukashenko actually play in the situation today? Because again, he said or he expressed his desire numerous times that he had negotiated with Prigozhin, an end to the movement to his mercenary troops into uh, inside Russia in order to de-escalate the situation. So again, the first question, how? Uh, what, what kind of role does Lukashenko play? And also the second one is, how effective do you think it can be by, um, again, uh, using the term that you said before, is the servant actually save the masters? So help us with better understanding the role of Lukashenko and also his credibility in this negotiation. What do you say to that? Well, look, you know, the over the last year and a half, well, over the last 10 years, uh, arguably over the last 20 years, uh, Putin has been chipping away at Lukashenko's power and authority. Mm. He's been making him increasingly dependent on Russia um, for many years until about 2014, well, certainly until 2022, Lukashenko was also flirting with the West. He was trying to balance Russia against the West, mm-hmm. and he was succeeding. Uh, things got more difficult for him uh, several years ago during the Belarusian uprising. And at that point, because the West criticized him, he turned towards Putin. But again, remember, during the entire war, There was always talk of the fact that Lukashenko might get involved in the war, might send his troops toward the war, and he always resisted. Putin pressured him. Lukashenko said, we always support you. We will always continue to support you. But we're always going to support you in the back. Mm. (laughs) Not in the front, but in the back. Uh, So he's been very clever. He's resisted getting involved in the war. Um, he, you know, he hasn't paid a too high a price in terms of his authority. Um, and that's again to his credit, to his ability as a survivor. Um, but that said, Putin has been pressuring him and pressuring him. 
And as I said before, essentially, he was able to transform him, certainly over the last year and a half, into the equivalent of a servant mm -hmm. of the master. And now, as I said before, Lukashenko, for reasons that we don't know, again, remember, we don't know why, whether he was called, mm. whether he was, whether he volunteered, we don't know exactly what the deal was. Uh, all we know is that Prigozhin called off the mutiny and said he's, he's leaving for Belarus. Will he really leave for Belarus? Will he stay there? If he goes there, will he use Belarus as an opportunity to stage a new challenge? Who knows? Mm. What we do know is that when the servant becomes a key negotiator, he's no longer quite the servant. Mm. Um, so this means effectively that Putin, who has become weaker, so Putin's authority has declined, Lukashenko's authority has raised, has That's risen. Right. I don't want to suggest they're equal. They're not. Putin right. is obviously still much stronger. Right. But he's no longer as overwhelmingly strong as he was just a few weeks or days ago. And that means that Putin won't, ha won't be able to impose his will on Lukashenko as easily as he has in the past. Lukashenko is now in the position to say no. Mm. Now, will he say no? We don't know. But mm. he's now in this far stronger position to say no. Um, he's also in the position to play a greater role, if he so desires, mm. in trying to resolve the war. It's not inconceivable. Again, you know, stranger things have occurred. It's not inconceivable that he will try to position himself as a peacemaker. Mm as someone who tries to act as a kind of intermediary between Putin and Zelensky. Um, why not? Why not? Again, it, we don't know. These are all possibilities, but they're all based on the fact that the balance of power between Putin and Lukashenko has shifted. Mm. Uh, and that is significant. It will certainly be more difficult for Putin to assume that Lukashenko will agree to everything he says he suggests. It also has implications for whoever succeeds Putin. Imagine he's overthrown in a few weeks or in a few months. That person or persons will have to deal with the Lukashenko who's stronger and more self-confident than he was a few days ago. Mm. Uh, and that too will have significant implications. Because clearly we know for sure that Lukashenko does not want to get involved in the war. Mm. It would be in his interest to end the war as quickly as possible. And if he's in a stronger position, he could actually have some role to play in persuading the new Russian elite to end the war on terms that would be favorable well, at least to Ukraine and Belarus. Mm. So it's all possible. All of these possibilities are now there. We don't know which of them will happen, but we know they're there. They mm. weren't there a few days ago. Mm. Dr. Motel, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Let's bring China into our conversation. Again, as we mentioned before, 
China is a close partner with Russia, politically speaking and also economically speaking. The Chinese leader so far since the war in Ukraine took place met up with、uh, with Vladimir Putin virtually and also in person during the numerous occasions. Now I want to read something to you and let's、uh, let's analyze analyze the role of China. The Chinese leader is famous for its saying. The world is undergoing changes unseen in century. Let me say that one more time. The Chinese leader believe that the world today is undergoing changes unseen in a century. So again, Dr. Molto, by looking at Putin's vulnerability, by looking at this internal crack within this Russian system. How much did it impact, or could it impact, this political tie between Russia and China? And also, meanwhile, how should we understand the reaction from China today? Because again, if Russia goes down, or excuse me, if Putin goes down, it's not going to be a very pretty picture for China as well. So, which means China has to handle some sorts of responsibilities, or has to bear some sorts of obligations. So again, Dr. Molto, how much do you think that today the political ties and、uh, between China and Russia could be changed because of what's happening today? And also, what about the reaction from China? Well, you know that statement is very interesting. Let me just start by commenting on that.、Mm. Uh, I think the Chinese leadership, when they made that statement, they had in mind the fact that the world is becoming multipolar. There's,、mm. you know, China is emerging as a superpower. Uh, the United States is supposedly in decline, as is the West. Globalization is changing the face of the world, and so on.、Um, I don't think they meant, and, and you know, there's some truth to all of that.、Mm. Um, more in some cases, less in others, but I think there's some truth to that.、Um, but the one thing that they, I don't think the Chinese had in mind was that we may be in the process of witnessing the disappearance of the Russian Empire.、Mm. Or the Russian Federation,、um, you know the multipolarity, globalization. These are all processes that are ongoing, and they you know they will continue to a greater or lesser extent.、Um, but you know the collapse of the state, the possible collapse of the state, is, is certainly something that、uh, Xi Jinping was did not quite foresee or expect.、Uh, Russia was supposed to be a reliable partner. Uh, yes, Russia was supposed to be a reliable partner that would be subordinate to China,、mm. uh, certainly politically, certainly militarily, and of course, most importantly, economically. I, th- I don't think there was any doubt in the Chinese mind that this was going to be an unequal relationship, and of course, it has been an unequal relationship, but it was still supposed to be an unequal relationship that was premised on. A more or less stable Russia that would continue to exist as a political entity, and then would continue to function economically and provide China with the kind of economic、uh, resources that China would need for its continued rapid development.、Uh, but now we stand before the possibility,、uh, first of all, the very strong possibility that Putin. Xi Jinping's great friend may depart、mm. prematurely. We stand before the 
likelihood that the regime he created, the one we just talked about, the personalistic regime, will collapse. Mm. And we also stand before the possibility, perhaps even the likelihood, that this entire state may suddenly experience enormous instability. It could be civil war. Mm. Um, it could be secession. It, again, it's hard to predict. It's impossible to predict. All we can say is that these are possibilities that are now far more likely than they were in the past. And so all of these possibilities, unwelcome possibilities, I would add, um, represent significant challenges for China. China hitched its wagon to Russia um, in the expectation that Russia would be a docile, um, quiet, you know, but more or less reliable partner uh, and not a... And instead, the Russian horse may be, on the, may be dying. Mm. Um, so what do you do with the Chinese wagon when the Russian horse is dying or at least becoming significantly weaker? Um, well, you have to start thinking about what the medium and longer term implications of Russia's weakness are going to be. Um, this suggests, I mean, at the very least, this clearly suggests that relying on Russia to be a reliable partner may no longer be an option for China. Um, at the most radical, this may suggest that Russia uh, that China may want to decouple itself from Russia. Mm. Because if Russia is going down, the last thing China needs is to go down with it. That's right. Uh, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, so coming up with better relations, closer relations with the United States, uh, Anthony Blinken just visited China. That's right. Right? Uh, this begins to make more sense. Uh, why not refocus Chinese attention from Moscow, which may no longer be a reliable partner and may no longer be a partner at all, mm. and move it to the United States, which will remain a competitor, uh, but which will, but which could be a peaceful competitor as mm. opposed to a the hostile competitor. And I think that would be in everybody's interest, certainly in China's interest and certainly in America's interest, if their relationship could become more normal, mm. more managed, it would still be competitive and it would occasionally be hostile and there would always be problems. But there are problems and then there are crises. Mm. And if all they have is problems, well, somehow or other they can manage them. And it's the crises that you want to avoid as much as possible. And it's conceivable that China will shift its focus to the U.S. The U.S. will shift its focus to China. And we may see a more stable world as a result. Mm. Uh, of course, that would mean that Russia becomes more unstable. Mm. And that, of course, has all sorts of implications, first and foremost, for Russia's neighbors, but also, of course, for China. Mm. Again, Dr. Moltel, of course, ideally speaking, would love to see this deadlock between Ch uh, um, China and the U.S. can be solved sooner. Again, after uh, uh, Tony Blinken's visit to China, everyone is hoping on both sides 
believe this constructive communication and also meaningful engagement could actually put the two countries back on track. Now, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you a very simple question, which related to the West. Again, we know that today, U.S. is standing at the crossroads when we talk about political polarization. But by supplying uh, uh, the resources to Ukraine, this is also another major topic uh, within this institution. Again, the question everyone is on their mind is, hypothetically, if our prediction were to come true that Russian system is collapsing and uh, Putin is going down, is it still necessary for the U.S. to continue to support and offer supplies to Ukraine? Or is it time today for some countries, particularly the West, to take a step back and let Ukraine to make the final decision or let Ukraine to stand on its own in terms of ending the war uh, uh, with Russia. What do you say to that, Professor? Well, the West has to continue to support Ukraine, uh, regardless of what happens. Mm. Because what's clear now is that Ukraine's survival, stability, and security have become vital, mm. not just interesting, but vital to Western stability. Um, you know, until until the war began, people in the West often argued, well, Ukraine, it's nice, it's interesting, but it doesn't really matter mm. to us. Mm. Well, now it does. Because if Russia, and this, you know, first of all, because as, as we can see, there's a war going on and Ukraine is defending the West from a possible Russian invasion. But if Russia experiences the kind of instability we're talking about, then it will be absolutely imperative for there to be a kind of zone of stability uh, surrounding Russia. I don't mean containment necessarily, mm. but a zone of stability. That means that the Baltic states, Belarus, mm. Ukraine, Central Asia, especially Kazakhstan, uh, then Georgia, Armenia, they will need to be supported. They will need to be stable and more or less prosperous, hopefully democratic, and certainly secure. Mm. Because we don't know what's going to happen in Russia. Um, best case scenario, the Democrats come to power, and it's a happy end for everybody. Mm. Worst case scenario, the nationalists come to power, a civil war breaks out, and then imagine millions of Russians fleeing to the West, fleeing to China, mm. possible nuclear weapons. Who knows? Who knows? All these contingencies become possible. So securing the security and stability of Ukraine becomes vital mm. to this picture, but also helping Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan is absolutely vital to this picture as well, as is Belarus. Those three would be the keys to maintaining stability within Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Mm. So the support for Ukraine will have to continue. And my guess is that support for Kazakhstan and Belarus, assuming again that they want it, mm. will also have to increase as well. 
So the, the West will not be able to say, okay, it's over. Let's just go back home and enjoy a glass of wine. Mm. Uh, I'm afraid those days are over. Mm. Um, the West and China will have to devote resources, time, and energy to containing this instability. Not so much the threat of, from Russia, but more the instability from Russia. Mm. Uh, and it's possible. It can be done. But it will require time, energy, and resources. It won't be simple and easy. Of course, Dr. Motol, there are many possibilities to see what the next step Putin will take again to crunch his political and also his economic ambition. But again, as we mentioned before, the entire international community would like to see the end of the war in Ukraine. Again, it's not fair for people in many countries suffered under the war. And also, it is not fair for the international communities to bear the unnecessary financial and also this political burden. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Alexander Moltel. Again, Dr. Moltel is American historian, a political scientist. Again, he's a professor of political science at Rutgers University. And also, he's a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the Soviet Union. Well, Dr. Moltel, thank you so much for your time. Again, for your insights and help us with all the latest updates in Ukraine and also regarding the war in Ukraine. But again, really appreciate and love to have you back on the show. And again, always give us more insights and helpful analysis. So thank you so much for doing this. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to be talking with you and your audience.